Welcome to In Conversation, brought to you by Fine Music Sydney. In each episode, our host, Simon Moore, speaks to one of the important figures who make up Australia's artistic landscape. Over the course of the programme, you'll hear all about our guests' life, work and interests, along with a number of musical pieces of their choice. The following conversation was first broadcast in December 2020. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to a rather special edition of In Conversation. At Fine Music Sydney, and indeed every classical music-focused organisation on the planet, we're celebrating the 250th anniversary of the birth of the great Ludwig van Beethoven. I'm sure we'll get some new Beethoven nuggets from my guest today. Brett Waymark is one of the foremost choral conductors in Australia. Since becoming music director of Sydney Philharmonia Choirs in 2003, he's conducted the choirs in performances around Australia and the world. He's led all of the state orchestras, as well as the Orchestra of the Antipodes, Sydney Youth Orchestra and the Hong Kong Philharmonic. In June this year, he ran an online masterclass with the Sydney Opera House to teach us all how to sing, you guessed it, the Ode to Joy from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Brett Waymark, thank you for being in conversation with me today. Thank you very much for having me. Now, the, I have to say that doing that masterclass, it, it is the epitome of the show-must-go-on attitude that I think uh, the, the entertainment industry has had uh, this year. But I think that virtual Beethoven tutorial event might have been one of the most imaginative. Well, look, uh, to do it to an empty auditorium is something that most chorus masters are not used to doing, but mm. we adapted pretty quickly from a technological point of view to what we were facing with COVID-19 restrictions, where basically choirs dried up in the space of about 24 hours. In fact, our story is we were just about to go into the piano dress with Donald Runnicles for Mrs. Slemness, Beethoven, uh, when suddenly we couldn't have more than 500 people in a room that made those performances virtually impossible to stage. So we spent a couple of weeks very quickly moving all of our stuff online, and it felt like a natural progression to do some of our big community work online as well. So we were thrilled when the Opera House came to us and said, we'd love you to, to host this. Um, it scared the pants off me. And my pants did not fall off during that particular broadcast. No, no, thank God. But it was it was tremendous to still feel that we could actually do what we do, yeah. which is, you know, get people who may not have sung Beethoven 9, not even know what the words are about, to be at home and learn it with some fantastic singers who are up on stage with me. And then at the end, we did a very silly crossfade to a pre-record with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra and this they could sing. This is what it's supposed to be like. <laughs> Absolutely. This is what it was like in years gone by. And But, it, you know, it still sort of captured something of, you know, you could be the world's greatest shower singer mm. and you could still get involved in Beethoven 9, understand what the text is about, learn all the good juicy bits and sing along with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra. It was it was actually a great deal of fun to do. But you mentioned the, the empty auditorium. I mean, you were doing it live to air for one of a better description, mm -hmm. weren't you? So how do you bounce off nothing in comparison to the live audience? Yeah, it is It is an interesting question. I mean, I luckily had some very uh, sort of 
unsensible dudes around me in the choir. So we had right. a soprano, an alto, and tenor bass. That was about my only sort of, um, what's the word, straight guy to work off in yeah. the room. Because otherwise you're actually looking down at a digital clock that basically starts at 45 minutes and slowly disappears. So you're very much, actually, from a from a normal running of a rehearsal point of view, it's quite similar. You're constantly just checking the clock as you go through, making sure you're up to the right part yes. of the rehearsal so that you actually cover the entire work. So from on one level, that was no different. But there's two things. One, to not actually hear laughter or any sort of, you mm, know, feedback. is this working? Is this Am working? I dying <laughs> <up here>? <laughs> <laughs> um, but the funny thing is, the very first rehearsal we had back, um, where you actually heard somebody respond to a warm up, and you realize, oh, well, that's what we do. As chorus masters, we prepare, 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 mm. but you live absolutely in the moment, dealing with what the, the, the sort of feedback you're getting from the choir and correcting. Either that's what you've imagined in your head, or it's not what you've imagined in your head. What do we then do to fix that and make it better? Uh, so to not be doing that was quite bizarre and it was definitely a sort of one-way communication uh, mm. path um, but lots of people watched it and terrifically when it was actually uh, shown live on the Sunday afternoon it was with live feeds coming in and various things like that oh. so it, it had a, it had a small spark of the little you know, smiley faces yes, yes, absolutely well. oh, that's yeah, nice. which was nice but you can still watch it now can't you? you can still watch it if you really want to well no, if, yeah, you, if you really want to experience the, yes. uh, the, the, the your knowledge of Beethoven yes. now Beethoven we'll, we'll talk about him for a moment because he's naturally considered considered one of the greats. If you asked anyone in the street to name a classical composer, even if they knew nothing of classical music, Beethoven would be one of the first names they would choose. So what do you see as the reason Beethoven is a cut above many others? Look, I think in, in many ways, I mean, he, he epitomises our somewhat 19th century view of what a composer is. He was the first composer really not to have a court position. A group of wealthy noblemen got together and decided to give him a stipend, which, which kept him composing in the sense as an art, our, our modern conception of what an artist is. Mm. that they're, they're slightly removed from society, but part of society. They respond to society. They hopefully give us something higher to aspire to. Um, in, a, in a place like Vienna, when he went there for the first time after growing up in Bonn, Vienna was very much an entertainment capital, but he came with the view of really trying to provide it with a much higher level of art. So and I think that's what we sort of conceive now artists and composers to be. So that there's that element. But, you know, it's an incredible story of such, you know, adversity you know, coming good, trumping, if you if you will, the 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 situation that he was born into, which was an alcoholic father, a relatively poor family, mother dying quite early on, father convinced that he was the next Mozart to the point where he actually, I think, he moved his age back two years to try and pass him off as a child prodigal. So you know, the, mm. some biographies you read, there are three Ludwigs. There's the younger Ludwig that died in childbirth. Then there was actually Ludwig the one that we know, and then there's his father's version, which was two years younger in order to be passed off as a, as a, a child prodigy. It's a miracle. Mm. You know, so, I mean, you know, when he fled Bonn, he'd already experienced quite a lot of life um, and had, you know, the responsibilities of running a household. Then he went to Vienna as a virtuoso pianist and later became, you know, one of the greatest composers we have. And I think, therefore, the thing that every sort of person who comes across Beethoven has to sort of reconcile is this heroic quality to his music, which 
asks of the composer more than probably anybody else did up until that time. Uh, I mean, all composers are difficult. You know, the incredible line of Mozart, the inability to find a place to breathe during Bach. But there's something, you know, Beethoven, just when you feel that you've reached that final hill before the end of the city to surf, he just goes, no, actually, we're just going to take you this way. It's just, it's a little steeper and a little harder. Um, So there's this constant striving, uh, in a sense. And if you're going to try and get through a Mrs. Lemnus or a Beethoven 9, or even the Mass in C, one of his earlier works, from a choral perspective, you're going to have to work pretty damn hard to come up to his ideal of what the music you know, is meant to be and what he's trying to say in his music. Same with the, the, the you know, the one and only opera, Fidelio. So I think, I think maybe for me, if I had to encapsulate it in a nutshell, it's that combined with this extraordinary story of a man who had a very difficult life and his music is partly biographical, but partly not. Um, it, it The music opens itself up when you find out so much more about the, the the struggles, the real struggles that Beethoven went through just to survive. Mm. Um, and, you know, possibly, again, a sort of romanticised view of the composer with, you know, just imagine if you were a painter and you suddenly could not see your creations anymore. To be Beethoven, to write these, you know, composers and conductors and other musicians work in their heads a lot. We often conceive the music in our heads before we actually make it physically in the world. But for Beethoven to not have that final stop to hear his creation in the flesh must have been... None of us can imagine what that must have been like. Well, I think we need to hear some of it, Mm -hmm. some Beethoven. So uh, what's your first selection for us? So we're going to listen to the Benedictus from the Mrs. Lemnus, which is his second big mass setting, his first one being the Mass in C, which was, you know, pretty much a dedication to Haydn's compositional technique. This is where we, you know, this is towards the end of his life. It's one of the longest gestations of a musical composition ever. It took him years to to write this piece. And it's sort of the yin and yang of Beethoven 9, in a sense. There's the Ode to Joy, uh, which is a secular, essentially a secular text. And then there's this hugely symbolic religious text that he grapples with in this. But this is possibly some of the most beautiful music I think that's ever been composed.
Just a little fragment of Beethoven's Misa Solemnis that was uh, part of the Benedictus. And it was the choice of my guest in conversation today, the conductor, Brett Waymark. So, Brett, why did you want us to hear that work today? It's just one of those insanely beautiful moments where after a great deal of fire and brimstone mm. at the beginning of the Sanctus, this text, Blessed Are They That Come in Into the Presence of God, essentially, is, is the meaning of the text. You get this lone voice of the solo violin, and it it's just absolutely heart-stopping every time you hear it in performance. It's some of the most simplest music ever written, but it's some of the most effective. Um, and it... It, it, look, there's the, only, the only words to describe it is transcendence. Something happens during this, particularly this interlude before the singers start um, with the text. There's, it's just extraordinary. My favourite moment. Now, you said this was the second sacred work that mm-hmm. he'd written like this, um, yet you sort of also had said that he was effectively you know, the first non-court composer mm. in a big way. So why did he write this? Well, look, this started out as a dedication, actually, to one of his patrons. And I don't think that, from what I remember, I don't even think that it was asked for. It was like he just decided, I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna write a Misa Solemnus I'll for I'll do you. that on Sunday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, I don't, you know. Well, actually, that's the point, Simon. I'll just do that on Sunday afternoon over the space of about, oh, I think, 12 to 18 years. Wow, that you know, long. It took that long. Wow. He missed it by a, a long stretch. Oh, uh and really, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, there's there's reports now, you know, in the in the diaries of various people who are visiting Beethoven that they would be walking up the stairs and they would hear him thumping out some of the fugato passages from the Mr. Solemnus. In some of the sketchbooks that we have, there are more passages devoted to the Mr. Solemnus than any other work in there as well. So really, it started from the wanting of him to... You know, dedicated to essentially a friend who was being um, instilled in a in a high position, and really it became about Beethoven struggling to understand his relationship with you know if you take Beethoven nine a loving God. So moving on to uh, a rather different subject, what made you want to become a conductor? I I became a bit obsessed by conductors. I think when I was in high school. So I was very lucky to be part of, you know, combined secondary schools, music camps and choral concerts and things like that. And there were just a handful of utterly splendid music educators out the front, conducting orchestras, conducting choirs, you know, introducing us to works like, um, well, Beethoven Mass in C, Handel Coronation Anthems, Belshazzar's Feast, Caramel Bananas, otherwise known as Carmina Burana, <laughs> uh, by, by Karl Orff. And I... I just thought that's what I wanted to be. When I left school, I I actually wanted to become an actor. And so I did the, the obligatory NIDA audition, didn't get in, decided, oh, well, done and dusted that one. Uh, I'm going to pursue singing, which is what I'd, I'd done all through school. So I ended up going to Sydney University. And as, a, as a choral singer rather than a musical theatre or opera singer? No, yeah, as a classical, classical singer, singer very yeah. much. Um, I mean, actually, I mean, I started in arts and then I did arts law and then eventually I think wow. three years into Sydney University I decided actually I really should do a BMUS. Well actually as well I mean I didn't come from a family where it was I'm not saying it wasn't an option but there hadn't been any musicians in my family or actors in my family or indeed artists or anything like that so it was a case of it was actually nobody really told me that you could do this in right. a sense and actually as a, as a tenor 
you don't know that you can do it at the age of 18 or 19 either because tenors you know famously take a while to mature i haven't matured yet but don't that's worry, i know i know i know <laughs> i'm working on it i'm working on it but uh so i didn't really know what i wanted to do but then singing really did take over and very quickly i ended up in the song company so i think i ditched sydney university for a while and sang in the song company and then i went back to sydney university and so i sang for a long period of time and then i just started I don't think bored is the word to use, but just that yearning to get back to actually it's the big picture that I'm I'm mm. quite interested in. So even though I was singing at, you know, with some lovely productions with the opera company and Pinchgut Opera and all sorts of fantastic ensembles, there was a yearning to, you know, actually see the big picture because which is what a conductor essentially does. Mm. Um if you think of a director directing a theatre project they don't appear necessarily on stage, but they mould all of the performances that you see before them. So a conductor, in a sense, does the same sort of thing. And the best conducting is where the orchestra or the ensemble feel they could go on without you because everything's happened in rehearsal. Mm. But you can just guide them in a way that might be a bit more surprising or with a little bit more chutzpah or a little bit more performance energy when it comes to the, the actual performance itself. So... I think that's that how that's how it happened. Went back to the good old Conservatorium of Music, uh, enrolled in a master's there. I was very lucky to get the job as assistant to Sydney Philharmonia Choirs, and the rest is pretty much history, history from then on. Goes yeah. from there. I mean, you mentioned that music wasn't necessarily part of your childhood. I mean, you were doing singing lessons and, mm. and so on like that. That was just part of an extra, uh, a regular extracurricular activity that your parents put you through. Pretty much. I mean, it just was it was on offer. Yeah. Um, you know, when I went to, I was very lucky to go to Neutral Bay Public School that had a great sort of music education arm to it. Uh, so from, you know, the, the, my very first memory of kindergarten is we all sat down and we sang a song. And mm. there was music all the time at, at Neutral Bay Public School. And again, really gifted educators who who could teach you that. So actually, I didn't really have any specialised music training until I went to high school. There was no reluctance from your family when you were sort of suggesting that you were going to ditch the arts law degree and go off and, and pursue music as a career. They didn't think, oh, that's not a real career or you're going to have trouble. There was a little bit of, don't you think you really ought to get a real job? Yeah. Um, and actually, I think, you know, my mother, bless her, uh, I think, you know, it's only a couple of years ago that she stopped saying, oh, but what happens if it doesn't work out? Uh, <laughs> to which I always think, my God, what happens if it doesn't work out? Because, I mean, the funny thing about an arts career, if such a thing can be had, uh, is it's a spiral. You know, yeah. some days you're at the top of the the ladder and other days you sort of spiral down. In any one year, you could be incredibly busy mm. um, and in other years you could find more time to do some more study and things like that. So, I mean, that's the thing. That There's no... It's, it's not like you suddenly become world famous in the arts. Some years you're incredibly busy and incredibly successful. Other, And, you know, sometimes you have huge successes and sometimes you have massive flops. Um, and, uh, you know, maintaining a, a presence in an artistic community requires you to be able to weather those. Well, we'll come back uh, a little bit more because I'd like to talk a bit more about uh, your role at the Sydney Philharmonia Choirs. Uh, but I think we need a bit more music. Okay. Um, so what are we going to hear now, Brent? Ah, I think we're doing Fidelio, aren't we? I think oh, we are. Good, excellent, great. So, look, the funny thing about this is Beethoven, in a sense, I, he didn't, despise Rossini, but he had again... <laughs> Looked down his nose. No, 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 no. But again, I think he aspired to opera as a genre being something that could affect people in a different way. So he writes this revolutionary opera 
in extremely difficult and potentially dangerous times in Vienna, essentially a police state. Uh, and he writes, essentially, a political thriller, um, a, a revolutionary piece at a time when Europe is dealing with this in a massive way. So, But this is one of those moments where everything just stops and you hear again some remarkable music. Quartet Mir ist so wunderbar from Beethoven's Fidelio. The second choice of my guest in conversation today, the conductor, Brett Weymark. Brett, that is really quite a beautiful quartet. And uh, so often when you hear that many voices singing their own parts, it's it's never not, not, not nearly as clear as, as what we just heard. Yeah, indeed. Um, look, the, the funny thing about that piece is it's, it's sort of like Sondheim, isn't it? It's like you've got each character on stage singing it. You know, Marcelina's convinced that she's found her man. Her man just happens to be a woman. Uh, <laughs> she's about to go and rescue and her husband. Ensues, yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> it, it's terribly serious. Uh, and then you've got, you know, Rocco going, oh, yeah, this is finally going to be a match. That's great. And you've got Yakino who, th- you know, I think the line is something like, my hair, my hair is standing 
happening on end. Yes. You know, so they've all got totally different ideas of what's actually happening in this scene. But it's like Rossini in those sense, you know, that you get to the Act 1 finale where suddenly everything stops and is suspended in time and everyone goes, pop, 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 pop. And they all imitate each other and suddenly, you know, this yeah. incredible ensemble uh, appears. So uh, they're all singing different texts. But, yeah, that particular recording with Rattle conducting is as clear as crystal. Um, but, again, it's just, you know, just going back to that Rossini analogy, it is actually the closest Beethoven gets to Rossini in that sense of yeah. using that slow motion button where suddenly everyone gets their own moment in the spotlight all action stops. We hear what their reaction is to what's happening. Their reaction is completely wrong, mm. but it's set to the most insanely beautiful music. So is Vidalia one of your favourite operas? It's one of my operas which I go back to time and time again because, again, it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. The fact that it was written during the period in Vienna is remarkable within itself. The fact that he struggled so much with it. It's a piece, again, he came back and revised and updated and adjusted here and there. There's 1,400 overtures you could possibly do with it. Um, but every single conductor who comes to this piece, I think somehow sees it through the lens of his own time. So if you listen to it, with Bernstein, you hear a lot of what was happening in America politically um, in that you've got Rattle who, you know, lived through an extraordinary period of history in Berlin with the Berlin Philharmonic and it became a very different orchestra under his tutelage there. Um, and then if you go right back to the Furtwängler recordings and things like that, it's a, again, it's a totally different world. So it is a sort of, a, it's a meeting of the political, the social, and, you know, the creative. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a really, it's, it's a piece which I never lose interest in sitting down and listening to yet another person's interpretation of. So why is there only one opera? Oh, look, I think he just struggled and struggled and struggled. He wasn't, look, he wasn't an easy man to work with. Uh, I think if I remember the story correctly, he, he, he pretty much bullied his way into getting the the opera to put it on. Right. And then, you know, to use the term that we use frequently nowadays, he wasn't much of a team player. <laughs> he's, he's the sort of person who would have walked in. And, that was on his annual review, well, was it? Well, <laughs> I think so, yes. You know, some de you know, developmental problems. Uh, you know, he's sort of a bit mm. like, you know, you're sacked. Yeah. You're sacked. I'll come in and direct this one. Um, so I think it was that. That sort of thing. I, I, th I think he was essentially very difficult to work with. He did try and start another opera, but it wasn't successful. But obviously, the meaning of this, and but also the sense of a virtuous person comes into a political situation to right a wrong, and it's through the heroic qualities of that person, that person to actually plunge themselves into a very dangerous situation mm. to free somebody is something that I'm sure Beethoven... Um, very much identified with, if nothing else, with what happened after the Heiliger Staat Testament and what happened when he became, you know, guardian to his nephew and, you know, his writings around that period of how he wanted to bring him up as a virtuous person. He wanted to be a model father to, to, this, to this boy, but unfortunately severely failed in that responsibility. Mm. Well, going back to Sydney Philharmonia, because uh, this you, you've had the, the the accident of having your hundredth birthday uh, in the same year as a global pandemic. Nobody else has put it quite like that, Simon. <laughs> well, I, I don't think it was part of the marketing plan. It was. I was in marketing. Plan. <laughs> uh, but uh, obviously, you know, this year has been horrific for for arts companies. But uh, it's very very sad that you you haven't been able to celebrate the hundred years 
in the way that you had hoped to. But you did do something rather quite exciting a couple of weeks ago, about a month or so ago. Yeah, yeah. Look, we, we managed to... Look, the big thing about the 100th anniversary was the creation of new music. We engaged some Indigenous composers. We uh, we had some composers overseas. Brett Dean had written us an amazing new oratorio that was you know, 60 minutes long that we were going to combine with the City of City, uh, City of um, Birmingham Symphony Orchestra and Chorus to perform in Birmingham. We were sending a choir over to the Olympic Games. It was, it was an extraordinary year. So if we wanted to try and resurrect, for want of a better expression, something of the season, it was around one of the new works. And having sort of worked with the choir in the virtual world for a couple of weeks, uh, the piece that we kept on, you know, finding that the, the choir engaged with the most was this new piece by Elena Katzchernan called Human Waves. It was to be the final instalment of our centenary concert in the sense that the first half, well, there's actually three ideas. Uh, the first part being the Indigenous heritage of Sydney, the second part being the arrival of European culture and hence Beethoven, Handel, Karloff, whoever, uh, in a big sort of mishmash that would happen in the second half. But then actually what's made Australia what it is today is actually the story of immigration. And migration and immigration has not always had the most positive spin on it in this country, which I think is a great shame because really... The country is what it is because of the people who've who have come here. Uh, so we really wanted to delve into individual stories and look at that. So Elena ended up with, I think it's eight or nine movements, these vignettes of people's lives, some mm. of whom are still living, some of whom came here in the last century or century before even. Um, and each one is just this, this tiny little you know, portrait of their life oh, yeah. in Australia. Uh, and, you know, we had a great deal of fun, fun teaching it online via Zoom. Uh, and then all the singers basically contributed via their iPhones. We mixed it all together in a studio. We filmed a live... Recorded a, on iPhones. All on iPhones, wow. or if some of them were a little bit more savvy, maybe they had a very nice microphone like the one I'm talking into mm. now. But, uh, yeah, we mixed it all together, which was one of the longest... Four days of my life, and we released. Surprised that you took four yeah, days. Yeah, they were long four days. <laughs> so time stretched, but you know we were incredibly happy. Yeah. With with the result, um, and uh, Tamara Anachivsloska wrote all the lyrics and then played in the recording. Mm. So it was it was really you know of all the pieces that we commissioned and we hope to do all of them in the next couple of years. Uh, we thought this one was the one that sort of we, you know, particularly from the choir's point of view as well, they they really engaged with this piece. Now you've written your own <laughs> music, um, which you have yourself conducted. Oh yes, your own music. So was conducting the performance a natural extension of the creative process for you, or were you in any way reticent to conduct your own work? You'd rather have someone else. Look, I'm a composer when needed, pretty much. I think everyone who does conduct should compose because basically that's what you're doing when you study a score. When you're studying a score, you're you're recomposing or deconstructing, going in the reverse and then putting it back together. So it's a bit like taking the radio that we all used to when we were growing up, pulling it apart and putting it back together again. That's essentially the conductor's job. You take a big work like a Mrs. Solemnus, you go through every single line individually, you look at the structure, you sort of... How did Beethoven put this together and why did he arrive at this particular version of all the sketches? Mm. You know, wh why was it this one that he stayed with or, or stuck with? When I need to, and there's a program that requires a piece that 
maybe you know we just haven't found that piece that really captures what we're trying to say with this i will sit down with a text and and try and compose something i'm composing something at the moment uh again a little bit out of necessity but also because i actually have just a tiny skerrick of time to devote to it so those sunday um, afternoons sunday afternoons <laughs> very good uh but I, th- I think it's important to have that that part there you know it's like you know you shouldn't be an art historian or critic without at some point just trying to put your shoes into what Mm. The artist was trying to do, you know, have a blank piece of paper in front of you and try and create that art. Um, maybe you'll think twice about criticising it. You know, uh, you know. Do you know what I mean? I mean, of course, artists go through years and years of training, and you know, they mm. they are drawn to it and things like that. But you know, every now and again, we should just put ourselves back in the the shoes of the choir, the people that you're conducting, but also in the shoes of the composer, uh, and just realise that you know. Don't take for granted these extraordinary pieces that we have because at some point they sat down with a totally blank piece of paper and put down their thoughts and created a structure out of something that wasn't there. Mm. That's really, that's extraordinary. But back in that period where you were moving from the Arts Law degree to the Song Company, etc., etc., composition, composing as the primary role, never really read it in? Not really, no. I was, I was in complete performance animal so mm. give me a stage give me an audience i'm a happy man uh i think there's a solitary i think maybe that was the shock when i became a conductor if you want to be a conductor you better get used to being by yourself and working in isolation quite a lot because the amount of time you spend in study and preparing compared to the amount of time you spend in front of an orchestra or a choir is absolutely disproportionate so, you know, it, and it's been actually interesting, you know, with Zoom and, and having to do everything online. Normally for a three-hour rehearsal, you do about three hours to six hours, you know, prep before you go in uh, to make sure that you know the piece backwards uh, and can answer any question. And if you don't, at least have a reason why you can't answer that question. Uh, but with, you know, doing things online, you've got to have everything pre-recorded, you've got to have an absolute razor-tight lesson plan, mm. and, you know you can only keep people's interest online for about 45 minutes after that. You know, they're doing it at home, essentially. Um, Some of them have got children to feed. Others have still got work to do until late into the night. And, you know, if there's anything like anybody else, you're suddenly taking a call from London at 1am in the morning. You know, it's, it's, you've got to be very, very disciplined and very, very prepared for that. So um, I think that's the answer to the question. I can't actually remember what the question was no, now, Simon. No, that's do. a sign of a good question, well, I think. Well, that probably means we need to have some more music. <laughs> probably. <laughs> now, this one, talking about being a performer and being on stage, yep. this, I love this next one. Can oh, it's you, terrific, can isn't you, it? Can you tell us what it is? Look, it's totally unrelated to Beethoven because you told me I could do that. You're allowed. Thank Just you, this Simon. once. Thank you very much. Uh, look, you know, I've done a lot of listening to things that I wouldn't normally have uh, time to do. And I was over in Berlin a couple of years ago. Actually, I was over in Berlin last year putting together an international tour that would have happened this year and I was very lucky to see a couple of productions of the Commissure Opera but via Barry Kosky's sort of love for this music uh, I've sort of rediscovered well not, not rediscovered not for me I've discovered point blank uh, the music of Paul Abrahams who was uh, a Jewish composer living in Berlin in the early parts of the 20th century he just wrote some absolutely unbelievable operettas that fused these two worlds, so sort of the American jazz influence with what was already a very healthy operetta sort of genre in Berlin. And so this is from Bal in Savoy, which was probably his most famous. It was turned into a film. Like he was the Cole Porter of his day in Germany. When I first heard it, I thought it was a much naughtier piece of text, you know. Um, I thought, but it actually just means, isn't it nice? 
to go out on a summer afternoon and wander around and look at people. I'm sure that's what they thought it meant at the time. Well, that's absolutely brilliant. Es ist so schön from uh, Paul Abraham's Ball im Savoy. Oh, actually, the title's a little bit longer than that, but uh, I'll just leave my German at that. Choice of my guest, Brett Waymark, who I'm in conversation with today. So that's, um, according to the note I have, that was uh, 1932. Mm-hmm. Now, Germany rather changes somewhat the following year. What happens? To yeah, I mean, Waymark? look, so he flees Germany, as do a lot of Jewish uh, creatives. A lot of his works are decided by the Nazi party to be degenerate and therefore verboten. So he flees to Paris and then to Cuba and eventually ends up in New York. Um, He suffers a mental breakdown, I think, in 1945, composes very little music after that. Eventually, I think he goes back to Hamburg in the 60s for treatment. No, actually, no, sorry, 1950s because he dies in 1960. And so it's, it's, again, just another sad case study of what happened to people in the Second World War, particularly creatives who, you know, he he wrote something like, I think it's over 20 shows, and they were all massively successful. But then suddenly, that music was not allowed. They were not allowed. They fled. Um, and it's a pretty miserable story from then on. Because it really did kill it all stone dead, because they had, there was such a vibrant... Um thing going on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, now you've got people like... Which which is quite celebrated now, isn't it? Oh, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Well, again, you know, we've got people like Otto Lemper who've gone back in and looked at all of that, you know, Berlin Cabaret stuff. It was extremely political. Um, You know, the the work of Hans Eisler, for example, you know, there's there's songs about abortion and all sorts. I mean, it's really heady stuff Mm. that people put into these. It was was absolute uh, political satire and 
prevarication mm. in, in a lot of these works. In the same way that actually Australia in around the similar period, you know, with things like the, the new theatre in, in Newtown, that opened with a very strong political message that it wanted to get out. Um, so, yeah, very interesting, heady times, but, you know, extraordinary music. Mm. Can anyone sing? <laughs> yes. What I love about the Sydney Philharmonia role is, of course, you get to work with incredible soloists, incredible conductors, incredibly gifted and dedicated choristers who perform at a professional level, but it isn't necessarily their job. They mm. have other lives outside of the choir, but when they come together for those three hours a week, they are choral artists, as far as I'm concerned. But the other thing that I get to do is go off to a theatre somewhere and have a whole room full of people who might not think they can sing or who only want to sing occasionally. And, you know, by the end of 45 minutes or an hour, mm. we've got them doing some rolled R's and some lip trills and some, you know, are there bees on you? <laughs> and, you know, they're, they're yes, suddenly singing in parts. Yeah, but it's more than just rolled R's and, and, and getting your enunciation beautiful. It's it's <laughs> it's whether you're in tune, I suppose, yeah, is what exactly, I'm trying to exactly. say. And there are a number... Look, you know, the thing is, the ear... It's one of the first things to develop. Yeah. It's it's absolutely, um, you know, research shows that, you know, your mother's voice already starts to spark musical pitch, you know, so your your ear from a very early age is learning to differentiate between listening, the act of conscious listening, as opposed to just hearing something. And you're already starting to filter because if we couldn't filter out things like the air conditioning, which I can vaguely hear in the background or the, the click <laughs> the of that talk, of that clock. you know, that's the sort of thing. Uh, you know, we learn to filter those things out and actually concentrate our oral energy on something else. Um, so, you know, it, it really does depend on what sort of environment you grew up in, uh, whether your mother sang to you. But then, you know, it, it is a use it or lose it um, muscle at the end of the day. Your vocal folds, Simon, were designed for something completely different, which is to stop you from, from choking when you eat, essentially, it, you know, mm. the epiglottis and the false vocal folds and all of those sorts of things, which are part of our vocal mechanism, they're all there to protect your windpipe, essentially, from food going down into your lungs, really, at the end of the day. So, therefore, singing is not necessarily a natural act. Mm. It is a learned skill. And depending on how high you want to go up on the ladder, you either need a good deal of training, but anyone can sing. It's there. If you can talk, you can sing. It's not that kind of thing that if you're not trained sufficiently by a certain age, it's sort of too late. Look, I don't think so. The problem is you're dealing with an abstract art form and therefore to create something that somebody has written down into something that exists, mm. you've got to translate those musical notes on the page into something that is not notes on a page, essentially. I think for most people who come at it later in life, that's the hardest thing. Mm. You know, if you want to sing in a choir and sing in four parts, you're going to have to somehow be able to read your part. Otherwise, you've got to have the most insanely fantastic memory and be able to memorise all of those <laughs> notes against other people's parts. So I think for most singers who come at it late in life, that's the hard part. Mm. Well, we have to slide in one more piece of music. Uh, what's our last one? We're back to Beethoven, by the looks. Oh, that's right. Yes, of course. This is, again, early-ish Beethoven. I think it's 1795, around the period that he's working on the Third Symphony. He's pretty successful in Vienna by this stage. Mm. And he writes 
an utterly beautiful love song, Zärtlich Liebe, Tender Love. It's essentially, Ich liebe, I love you as you love me. It's a beautiful piece. And, and this is Fritz Wunderlich. Who else? Fritz Wunderlich performing Ich Liebe Dich from Beethoven. So, Brett, uh, you said Fritz Wunderlich. Well, he's the tenor. And you said, of course, why is Fritz Wunderlich important? Well, look, when you asked me to do this interview, Simon, I wanted to actually have one of his songs because actually the one thing that we haven't talked about really is um, his amazing song repertoire. Mm. It's short, but... Andi Fernagalipta, his song cycle, is a thorough composed song cycle, unlike Schubert, which was basically song, stop, song, stop, song, stop. It actually starts with this um, beautiful melody, it goes through a series of permutations, and it comes back to where it starts. So from a form point of view, it was actually quite groundbreaking, in a sense, and there's only one one sort of example of it in his entire oeuvre, in a sense. So the song repertoire I find really beautiful and it's something that you don't hear much nowadays and this is a very simple song where the text and the piano are equal partners um, in the performance so I just thought it's maybe it's a it's a side to Beethoven that people haven't heard much. Mm. Well we'll just finish off with uh, going back to your role at, at Sydney Philharmonia you, you became the music director there in 2003 um, quite young if I may say. I'm still quite young now. <laughs> yes, but in 2003, I'm relative. you were even... I'm relative to the age I was back You were then. even younger in 2003, <laughs> do I suggest. That's very kind, Simon. Were you daunted? Uh, oh, look, um, yes, absolutely. I was constantly convinced they got the wrong person and there's probably Ooh. a couple of people sitting out there Imposter going... Imposter syndrome. Oh, yes, and I think there's a couple of people going out going, yes, they did. <laughs> um, but look... The person who came second, probably. Yeah, I, I, but that's actually a very good... M- Healthy maybe is not the quite word, right word, but you suddenly realise that you're thrown in the deep end to something that you've trained for but you haven't had a lot of experience for. Mm. So I was very lucky. I'd worked with a lot of different com- conductors, um, composers. I'd sung in a lot of choirs. But it's a very different beast to stand out the front and take a choir from the beginning of a rehearsal period through to the end, to let alone 
to understand what's involved in training a choir to then hand it over at the nth you know, hour mm. to another conductor. That nobody teaches you how to do that. And I'm still learning how to do it. And that's why I'm very lucky to still have, you know, wonderful people like Vance George in San Francisco and Simon Housie in the UK, who I can just write an email to and say, oh, look, I'm doing Child of Our Time next year. Can't possibly look at your score, could I? Um, you know, it's, it's a piece that I've conducted before. But, you know, it's an incredibly collegiate art form. And I can call on my colleagues to say, look, you've done this more times than anybody else, any chance I could just, you know, get a few tips from you and or maybe look at it in an entirely different way. And they'll happily help you. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. I mean, there aren't very many professions where people would be so generous. People who are effectively competitors, or do you not see it that way? Look, I think we're, we're custodians of a tradition, mm. I think, and I take very seriously that, um, you know, if, if Sydney Philharmonia were not performing certain works, who else would? Um, and they need to be kept in the repertoire because really an audience, and this is a hard thing, uh, you need to present pieces which are maybe not so familiar to the audience because if you never do, they will end up being completely forgotten because live performance is still where you are. You can walk into an auditorium and hear a piece for the first time live and it can make such a dent, mm. an impression on you, that you can remember it for the rest of your life. That was certainly the case for me with, like, say, the Mozart operas. The first time I heard Cosi Fan Tutte, I literally went home and listened to a recording and it was as if I just remembered every single note. Oh, it, made, it made such a profound impact on me. Now, that wouldn't have happened if I'd just listened to a recording. You had to be there and be, you know, drawn up in into it. So our role as, as chorus masters and artistic directors and I'm not saying that I'm always successful and you've got lots of things to deal with, i.e. budgets and bottom lines and keeping a company going through what at the moment is a very difficult time. But you can never give up the struggle to make sure that you balance a season with enough things that still need to be heard and need to be heard live alongside the things that you know will fund the rest of the season. Mm. Well, that sounds very important indeed. Brett Waymark, thank you so much for taking the time to be in conversation with me today. Thank you, Simon. I'm Simon Moore. Today I was in conversation with the conductor, Brett Waymark. We'll be back with a whole new set of episodes in 2021, so I hope you can join me then. This is Fine Music Sydney. Bye for now. For listening to In Conversation. This episode originally aired on Fine Music Sydney, 102.5 FM, streaming and DAB+. It was presented by Simon Moore and produced by Joe Goddard. For more episodes, just head to finemusicsydney.com slash inconversation. <laughs>